my primary hope is that this is just a book that someone really enjoys reading, can go back to later and reread. I mean, that's what I really want for it is just for people to have fun with it. Hey everyone, I'm Bianca Schultz from the Children's Book Review, and this is the Growing Readers Podcast. In this episode, I talk with Betsy Bird, the Collection Development Manager of the Evanston Public Library and the former Youth Materials Specialist of New York Public Library. Betsy reviews for Kirkus, served on the 2007 Newbery Award Committee, and her children's literature blog, A Fuse Number no. 8 Production, is hosted by School Library Journal. Her books include Funny Girl, an anthology of humorous stories, and the picture books, Giant Dance Party and The Great Santa Stakeout. She also co-wrote a book for adults on the sordid stories behind children's authors in Wild Things, Acts of Mischief in Children's Literature. Betsy was born in Kalamazoo, Michigan, and now resides in Evanston, Illinois, with her husband and offspring. Today, we're going to talk about her new middle grade novel, Long Road to the Circus. Before we get started, here's the synopsis. The story of a girl who rides an ostrich straight to her dreams from the award-winning writer and librarian Betsy Bird, illustrated by Caldecott medalist David Small. 12-year-old Susie Bowles is tired of summers filled with chores on her family farm in Burr Oak, Michigan, and she's desperate to see the world. When her wayward uncle moves back home to the farm, only to skip his chores every morning for mysterious reasons, Susie decides to find out what he's up to once and for all. And that's when she meets legendary former circus queen, Madame Marantette and her ostriches. Before long, Susie finds herself caught up in the fast-paced, hilarious world of ostrich riding, a rollicking adventure that just might be her ticket out of Burr Oak. Betsy Bird, welcome to the Growing Readers podcast. I've been so looking forward to our conversation because honestly, I don't know how you do it all. You're the collection Aww. development manager of Evanston Public Library. You frequently blog at the School Library Journal site, Fusate Production. You write reviews for Kirkus and the New York Times on occasion. You have the weekly Fusate and Kate podcast with your sister, your mom of two kids, a wife, and you write books. So I just wanna know where you're hiding the DeLorean time machine from Back to the Future and where you stock up on your plutonium for the flux capacitor. Exactly, it's an excellent question. Uh, yeah, sleep is for the week, as I like to say. Who needs it? Totally. Bah. Do you actually get any personal time? Uh, yeah, Friday evenings. Friday evenings? That's it. Basically like, Friday evenings. You know, I guess when I walk to and from work and when I'm cooking dinner, I don't have a ton of free time. It's This is why I tell people that I like, uh, this is why I love that my job is also my hobby. 
uh, in some ways. And, and I enjoy everything that I do. If I didn't enjoy this stuff, I don't think I'd do it all. But I like doing it so much that it's just fun for me. That's awesome. Like, so besides the book world, which we're going to talk a lot about in a minute, do you have any sort of interesting hobbies, hobbies that you think we should know about? Like, I mean, maybe do you spin wool into yarn perhaps? Oh yes, I do. Uh, If I can get my hands on a spinning wheel, my mom has three and I have zero right now. So I am going to have to change the spinning wheel to home ratio at some point here. Take one of my mom's, but it's really hard to sneak a spinning wheel out of your mom's house. I could sneak books. Like for years, I would steal her, her Nero Wolf books. And then she'd come and visit my house and be like, I wondered where that went. It is much harder to sneak out a spinning wheel. It, you can't put it under your shirt. You can't just like jump on a plane with it. It's a thing. Right. Well, so hopefully if you do do that, you have uh, somebody with you that records that. <laughs> I could sneak it out in pieces. It would be like a Mission Impossible thing where like you take apart the spinning wheel, you put it into a, a, you know, a nondescript sort of suitcase and then you walk out like, what this? No, this is merely my gun. You'd be fine. They'd never know it was a spinning wheel all along. Right. Well, maybe that's a picture book idea. How to, how to uh, steal a spinning wheel. <laughs> how to steal. Ooh, I like that title. Totally. How to steal a spinning wheel. So some kind of like ninja, ninja character there. Well, Betsy, I have so many random questions I'd like to ask you, but let's talk Ooh. about Long Road to the Circus. As I was reading it and of course loving it, I found myself wondering how you'd even come up with such a story and the characters are all pretty quirky, but then I read the back matter and it all became pretty clear. <laughs> so here's a big question for you. And then I'm just going to let you uh, talk away. So will you share with the listeners, first of all, how this story came to you, your connection to the characters, and also about why award-winning illustrator David Small had to be the one to create the artwork? Absolutely. So this technique, Technically, this story begins, if we're going to go chronologically, with my grandmother's no good uncle. And this was a guy who you know, came to live on the family farm, but he would skip out on his farm chores. And really, if you're on a farm, you got one job, people. And he would just walk miles to this other town nearby. Now, the family story was, so he would walk to this other town where there was this elderly ex-circus performer named Madame Morantet. And he was going there to find out how to train the horses on his farm to do circus tricks. And we were like, oh, that guy. But we didn't really believe that story. Now, sort of fast forward uh, to the 80s, my local illustrator growing up with David Small. And he came to my fourth grade class and he'd draw. And and my mom worked in like a local independent bookstore. She worked at Athena Books in Kalamazoo. And so she knew him and he did, you know, book release things there. And it was a lot of fun. And one day he, he offhandedly mentions that he lives in the old Morantat house. Uh, and that actually, fun fact, this old ex-circus performer used to live there. And my mom starts connecting all the dots and she's like, wait a minute. And though she looks into it and sure is shooting, there was a Madame Morantat. She did live in the Morantat house. And we're like, oh my gosh, it's not that far from Burr Oak where he would have been on the family farm. Crazy. So she tells me all this, you know, I kind of tuck it away in the back of my mind. A couple of years go by and then I start thinking to myself, like, wait a minute. David lives in the house that my grandmother's no good uncle used to visit. What if I wrote a picture book about this whole story with a circus performer and the no good uncle? This could be really fun. So 
I wrote the story and as a picture book and I, and I sent it to my agent and we both forgot about it. And then a little later, there was like a book expo thing and David was promoting a book. And then someone came back to me. I was like, well, he's not looking good. And I was like, ah, David Small is going to die and he won't have done my book yet. So I started poking my agent. I was like, Stephen, 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 send him the book. And so he sent him the book and David loved it. He had me come out to the farm to see it. We, we actually stopped by a, a historian in the area. She hands me all the information you could ever want on Madame Morantet. I'm talking like a thick old packet of info. And she just gives it to me. And she's like, here you go. And I was like, um, thank you. Research is easy. You want to know what Madame Morantet's like grandparents did for a living? I got that info for you. But then David tells me like, I don't see it as a picture book. I see this as a novel. And I was like, oh no, uh, I've never written a novel, but I, I, I wrote it as a novel. And, uh, and but of course I had to expand it. And so I was thinking like, well, I better fill this thing with my relatives. <laughs> so this thing is chock full with my family. If there's a kooky character in there, it's probably based on an actual family story that we put in there somewhere. Yep. That's awesome, Bessie. So now I have this question for you. You have experience writing picture books, and obviously you imagined this as a picture book. When I read it, it felt like you've been writing middle grade novels forever, Betsy. Oh, I mean, it, it really so does. Nice. It really does. I mean, I was just was blown away. And so for me, how different was it? filling in all those extra words that don't fit in a picture book. Exactly. Yeah. And that was the thing I, I said to David, I was like, I don't know how to write a novel. I mean, I've tried. I've, I certainly have many working novels that I've been working on. But uh, and David was like, I believe you can do it. And I was like, well, why do you believe in me? <laughs> that's that's kooky. But yeah, so it was weird. Some books that I try to write, you know, it's like, going uphill in the snow, you know, it's just a struggle. This one, it was like water flowing out of my fingertips. It was just the words just came. I don't know what it was, but if I think it was the connecting it to my family that really did it. I had a very clear sense of each character in this book, their motivations and where they were coming from and what their lives were like, partly because I had you know, when I was younger, I got quite obsessed with this part of my family, just trying to figure out their history personally. And a lot of that personal history got in. And so when my editor would come back and say, I actually think we need another chapter here and we need another chapter here. That wasn't an issue because I was like, oh, well, I can include this information about where the mom was when she was growing up. And I can include this information. This tech character is technically my grandmother. I can put her in there. So yeah, it was, it was kind of, uh, I don't know. It should have, I feel like it should have been harder than it was, but it came to me very naturally. Well, it reads very naturally. Well, oh, so good. like we're on all these characters now. So, so let's talk a little bit about Susie. She's the, the main gal. She's very strong-willed, determined, and it's so admirable. And as I was reading it, I was like, I feel like Betsy knows this girl. And so I'm wondering, do you think Susie's part you? Oh, Yeah. 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 And which is so funny because I didn't grow up in Borough, Michigan, which good old Borough, Michigan. That's a great place. It's a teeny, teeny town. I grew up in Kalamazoo, Michigan, which is not a teeny, teeny town. It's a good sized town. It's got the university. It's got a college. And uh, and yet when I was, you know, when I was young, I was like, I will live here in Kalamazoo for the rest of my life. This town has everything. And then I got older and I was like, I have to get out of the state. 
there's something here. I just got to get out. I don't know what it is, man. I went to Indiana, so I didn't go far. But, you know, I was just like, nope. So that urge to leave, it's a bit younger in Susie, I'll say. But I think it's because she's in a much smaller town and she has a lot less options. I mean, she's a girl growing up in rural Michigan, like 1920 about, and there's just not a ton. Like people aren't coming to her door knocking and saying, hey, here's a life for you. What she sees as her life is the life of the other women in the town. There's nothing wrong with that, but that's not the life she wants. And, you know, I think there's a bit of like, she sees her mom got out of Oklahoma and, you know, she sees that there there's ways to travel, but she just, she wants more. And yeah, I do identify with that. She, she is based on my grandmother's sister, Susie, who did get out of Burrow, uh, but she went to Detroit, the big city. And then, uh, and then took my grandmother with her and then they, they lived the big city life. So, you know, that's, that's an option too. No ostriches, sadly, are actually in my family history. It would be cool if there were, but there are All right. not. Well, since you said ostriches, let's let's get into the ostriches right now. So Susie wants to learn to ride an ostrich. And I just have to say, you you wrote the ostriches so well, particularly Groucho. And I have to say that I know this from a firsthand experience of literally being chased by a flock of ostriches. <gasps> oh, no. It was when so was this? <laughs> we were in California and it's like a wildlife uh, reserve. Uh-huh. And we thought it would be a fun activity to take our then four-year-old. So we're in this Jeep vehicle and I was sitting in the very back and it was open air and we're going through the field and the ostriches were in their flock just standing around and we're just driving along. And then they suddenly started chasing us and the Jeep driver was like, this is serious. We got to go. And he like, he flaws it and I'm in the back and the ostriches (laughs) were getting closer and closer. And (laughs) it was like Jurassic Park. Yeah, it totally was. The rest, the rest goes blank for me. I can't remember what happened, but (laughs) I was safe and I am here to tell the story. But man, those things are so fast. So dinosaurs, that's what they are. They are modern day dinosaurs. They totally are. And so I I hope you don't mind, but I want to read a little paragraph from page 34 because this to me was like, oh, it feels like um, Betsy has actually lived with ostriches. Anyway, (laughs) okay, here goes. counted. Twelve. Twelve full-grown ostriches walking about. I'd always lived with chickens. Chickens get ruffled at you sometimes, and you can't really blame them for it. They're undang fault for being so tasty, really. But you don't worry about them. You don't stay awake at nights pondering whether they're going to gang up on you or anything. But staring now at these monsters, it was like I was seeing nature's revenge on behalf of poultry. They were huge. Anyway, I loved that paragraph. Oh, good. <laughs> I enjoyed writing that. All right. Yeah, that, I, I have to credit my, my editor, actually, because she was like, okay, we need more ostrich stuff. More ostrich stuff. So, yeah, anything particularly ostrichy, I, I credit to her. Well, right. And there's like little facts in there woven throughout that were really quite interesting. I loved actually learning a little more about it. I liked the way that little non-fiction-y stuff was woven in in a fiction-y way. So, oh, well yeah. done. Yeah. Thank you. I did a lot of ostrich research, so. Let's uh, let's talk about Granny. Can you talk to me a little bit about her? Yeah, sure. Granny is real. 100% real. Mariah was her name. 
Uh, she was my great, great grandmother. The first thing I ever learned about her was that when she was three, she shook the hand of Abraham Lincoln because his train happened to stop in Burr Oak, Michigan while he was on a tour of the United States at one point. This was before he was president. But granny was, as my great grandmother used to say, who would, which is her, her daughter-in-law, she was like, it took me years before I realized that Mariah wasn't mad at me. <laughs> It was just so right there. You've got a you got her personality down, and the the story that we have in there of her cutting herself and just bleeding all over the place, and and her daughter in law being like, "Mother, you have to bandage that up. You're going to bleed to death." And her response being, "I ain't got enough blood to bleed to death." That's again family lore right there, straight up. I just copied it onto the page. Nothing original there, but but yeah, her personality was set in stone when this thing began. Yeah, I mean, Granny was such a great character because it's exactly what you said. You you couldn't tell if she was a happy person, but then at the same time, you also knew that she loved everybody. So mm-hmm. I just, I, she was That's kind of- how she shows it. She shows it by whacking you. Yeah. <laughs> she, whacks, she whacks you a little bit if she likes you, and then she really whacks you if she doesn't like you. So yeah. yeah. That's funny. I I have one of those sort of dreaded favorite type questions that authors love. I'm not going to say what's your favorite book, Betsy, but I am going to ask, do you have a favorite character from this book? Oh, that's an excellent question. I have to, unfortunately, I have to go with the ostrich, Gaucho. Um, Again, I don't know what it is about this book. This book is just chock full of ornery people. It's like I went through and found all the orneriest people. It's amazing that Gaucho and Granny don't have a one I think they'd kill each other if they ever had like a one They never meet in the book, but their personalities are really closely aligned. If Granny was an ostrich, she would be Gaucho. And Gaucho is, I mean, that's his personality to a T. I have uh, newspaper clippings from the time that say things like, you know, Madame Rantet asks that people avoid the ostrich paddock today. The bird is in a vicious mood. And uh, he did escape once and he almost kicked a man to death um, while they were trying to capture him. Like three guys had to gang up on him and try to get him. And I did not include um, how they could finally get him because the only way you could stop him was to cut off his air, which was to be, to grab his neck and cut off his air, which is not, you know, animal cruelty great in a kid's book so wasn't going to be including that yeah in fact there were a couple moments when she was really gripping his neck and the editor was like yeah let's have her grip a little less tightly (laughs) it's like okay yeah gaucho does never asphyxiates at any point in this book i will reassure that to people but he's my favorite character without a doubt he's dumb i mean their eyeballs are bigger than their brains if they see a lion it is often they will simply run in circles they can't deal with it that's the level. But he was canny. You can be stupid and canny. And he was canny. He was as smart as an ostrich could possibly be, I think is fair to say. I would agree with that. So I think had I not have had that experience of being chased by ostriches, <laughs> I might have had more feelings for Groucho, but I was, yeah, yeah, I was wary of him. So for me, I I have to say I loved Susie's strength and her desire mm-hmm. to be worldly and to leave Burr Oak, Michigan. Mm-hmm. At the same time, as much as she wanted to escape, your writing was also honoring the importance of family connections and the idea of home. And I also loved how you managed to sneak in some really wise snippets of wisdom, like such as the importance of not participating in gossip. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I love that David Small began that chapter with a group of chickens because that I did name each one of those women after a different kind of chicken. And uh, and I had been asked at one point, should we take that chapter out with the women gossiping in the town? And I said, no, 
we need it because we need Susie to see what she would become if she stayed. Yeah, absolutely. And also, I feel like any movie set in that time or, you know, in this kind of setting, it felt right to me. It belonged. That chapter belonged for sure. Oh, yeah. Good, good, good. Yeah, yeah. And it's funny because um, to this day, many people in Menden, Michigan, still speak very disparagingly about Madame Morantat. They do not like her memory. So oh, that's so interesting. Yeah. So they, they're still around, those people. Yeah, well. <laughs> I just, I feel like it's so easy to get caught up in as well. Like there was so many stories about her that people believed, but Susie got to see that the different mm-hmm. side to her and to, to understand why it's important not to participate in gossip. So yeah. I liked that. All right, the other little nugget that I, I want to say of, of wisdom that you put in there. And for me as an adult reading it, I was like, wow, this is, I don't know if I've ever heard this little wisdom nugget before. Never confuse gratitude for debt. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I don't know where that came from. Sometimes you're writing and I don't know, you tap into a part of your your subconscious that just comes up with lines. And then you reread them a little later and you're like, that's a good line. I wonder really- who wrote that because it sure doesn't sound like me. <laughs> but yeah. Awesome. Like yeah. I actually like I feel like I felt that one in my gut when I read it. I was like, that mm-hmm. just made sense to me. And I I love the way it wasn't like any little bits of wisdom in there. I'm not preachy in any way. And any reader that they'll either get some of those little snippets of wisdom and understand it themselves, or maybe because they've read it in your book, they'll come to understand that meaning later on. And they may not remember that they read it in your book, but you've planted a seed now of of a way of thinking. And I liked it. Well, that's what I like about kids' books. You have no idea. Basically, ideas from my brain have been put on a page, and now my ideas from my brain are going to somehow make it into your brain. Now, if your brain is growing and is young, then who knows what implications that has? I mean, that that's a huge responsibility, and it's also just absolutely fascinating because we have no idea like you can read a book when you're like 10 and then years later still recall a passage or not and then go back and read it and you're like oh my gosh that's where that's from yeah you have no idea what the implications are when you write a book for kids right well that actually just I want to go on a quick tangent here because this is something I always wonder so you obviously have read a lot of children's books in your life when I read sometimes I I'll have trouble months later recalling exactly what a book was about but I always remember how a book made me feel. Mm -hmm. And so I'm wondering for you, do you have the kind of brain that can sort of, you know, run off a book synopsis and tell everybody exactly what that book is about? Or are you more like months later, like me, where you may have to like go read the jacket flap, but you could have identified how you felt? It depends on the kind of book. So a picture book, you know, there's so many picture books published in a given year. I read about five of them a day of new ones just to try to keep up with everything that's being published. When you read that many picture books, what stays with you, it's very sensory. You may remember the plot perfectly, or you may not. I mean, there have been books where like, I've read them early in the year, then I see them on a list somewhere later, and I'm like, oh, I should read that. And I start reading, I'm like, oh, wait, 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 wait. I read this one. I read this one. This is why I actually keep a spreadsheet of every single book I read, (laughs) so that I can sort of go back and be like, yep, nope, I did read that one. Okay, don't have to finish that one. Okay, good. When it comes to novels, I do I read less of those, but I do read a lot of them. Those I do remember fairly well. Sometimes I don't remember their titles, but I'll remember I try to remember 
their authors, but I will remember like their plots. And I usually try to remember a way to find it later. So that when somebody says, oh, I've got this uh, book idea where it takes place in the future uh, in England, but everything's underwater. So I can be like, oh, okay, we're going to try to find those for you so that you can kind of look at those and compare to the new one that just came out. Like, that's the kind of thing my brain does. It catalogs things into different categories so that then I can go back and look at them later. That's genius. See, that's why you're an amazing librarian. (laughs) Okay. So I'm curious, back to your book, what impact do you hope it has on readers? Oh, you know, that's a really hard question because I hope they have fun with it. That's what I'm going to say. You know, some, some books, you know, are very meaningful and I got nothing against meaning, but my primary hope is that this is just a book that someone really enjoys reading, can go back to later and reread. I mean, that's what I really want for it is just for people to have fun with it more than anything else. I don't want it to be a slog. I don't want anyone to be like, oh, that chapter. Oh, I hate that chapter. That chapter takes forever to get through. Like, I don't want that feeling at all. I just, I just want a book when you're like, man, I just need a ridiculous book where a girl rides an ostrich. Bam. Here's your book. So would you say it's fun that drives you and guides you in creating children's books? Oh, absolutely. I was the kid who like, I'd be in the school library and I'd see, oh, you know, Island of Blue Dolphins and Julie of the Wolves and, uh, you know, Bridge to Terabithia. And I'd be like, no, I want the book about the girl with the silver eyes who has psychic powers. I want the book about the girl who owns tiny dragons. You know, those were the books that I gravitated towards. And yeah, admittedly, those were more fantastical, but no, I loved all of a kind family. I didn't really want to read books that were award winners, which feels bad because I like award winners now. But at the time I was like, oh, shiny gold medal on your cover. Somebody's going to die. Not interested. (laughs) Going over here now. I think it's safe to say, and I don't know this for a fact, but I think it's fairly safe to say that nobody ever really will die in my books because I just don't want to do that. It's not my thing. I can see that. I think you're you're a fun person yourself, so it would make sense that that's what's in your books. Me personally growing up, I did love Bridge to Terabithia, but... I think one of my favorite all-time books was Roald Dahl's Revolting Rhymes. Oh, I loved Roald Dahl as a kid. Exactly. (laughs) I was like, Roald Dahl, if anyone dies, it's in a really wacky and gross way. Yay. Okay. So that was, yeah, that was it. Like, yeah. Yeah. No, I I was into, you know, people covered in boogers and trash and all that. Absolutely. (laughs) Boogers and trash all the way forever. All right, Betsy. Well, here's my question that I like to ask everybody. They say to be a writer, you need to be a reader first. So Was there a pivotal moment in which you considered yourself a reader? I've been asked this question before, and my my standard answer is, it's like asking me, was there a point in your life when you were like, breathing air? I should do that. No, because I grew up in a house of books. Reading was simply part of the air. It was what you did. You know, if you have bookcases in every single room, you don't even consider the option of not reading. You know, third grade, I learned to read on my own. and, And then I just sort of went from there. And it was never a case of not reading. It was only in adulthood when you get super busy and you have to make time for reading. That was different, but no, reading was just always a part of the DNA. And so it made sense that you just followed your heart and became a librarian, or was there ever a Uh, time where you thought you would 
be something else or yeah no there was so you know I grew up and I was a kind of kid who when they were six like their parents jokingly said well once you're out of college you can't come back home ha 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 and in my brain I was like oh my gosh when I get out of college I can't come back home and I must have a job I must get a job and so uh librarian seemed a nice safe job so from a very young age I was like librarian that's what I'll do and to be fair I alphabetized all the family's books in the dining room and when we got vhs tapes and they had you know remember you got blank ones and they had like the letter number stickers i would put them and i made like an organizational system for all our vhs tapes i got our national geographic magazines and i made subject heading lists for them for fun in case i ever had to do a report on capuchin monkeys which i didn't and so but then when i got older i was like oh librarianship that's boring no i don't want to be a librarian i want to be a photographer that's a sexy job. That's a job I want to do. I'm a terrible photographer. I should tell you, I'm not, I'm good enough to know what's good. I am not good enough to make what is good. I tried every kind of photography. I tried, you know, portrait and studio and, and architecture and sports and you name it. I did a uh, photojournalism, but I realized pretty quickly I've got a slow shutter speed catch. <laughs> I don't understand f-stops very well. So then I was like, okay, back to librarianship. I had hedged my bets. I got a double major in both uh, photography and uh, English. And so I went to library school, but I was like, but that's, I'm not going to be any old librarian. I'm going to be a, I'm going to be a conservator. I'm going to conserve books. It's going to be awesome. I went home one day and my, my husband pointed out, he's like, you've put your coffee cup on your book on how to preserve books. And I was like, it's a sign. And I took a, <laughs> I took a kid's book course on a whim and discovered um, that I, it was like lightning striking. It was what I was meant to be. I was like, oh my gosh, because I'd already been reading kids' books for a really long time because I'd gone to England my junior year of college and my mom had me pick up the second Harry Potter book. It was, had just come out there and it wasn't even a thing in America. I don't even know how they'd heard about it, but that I started reading it there and I was like, this is really good. And then when it hit in America, I was like, well, duh. And, uh, and I just was reading kids' books ever since just for fun. And then when I realized I could make a career out of it, I was like, oh my gosh, why have I been resisting this all along? I feel like I have the perfect last question to follow up after that, Betsy, because we have a call-in from a librarian in Canada. So I am going to I am going to hit play on this question. Hi Betsy, I'm a children's librarian in Vancouver, Canada. And my question is, what's the one thing that I should try to impart to the parents who bring their children to the library? Thanks. Ooh, she, that's a good one. It is. She has the nicest little voice too. Yeah, she does. She has like a radio voice. Totally. I like I would listen to that podcast. Absolutely. Oh, the one thing you should impart to your children when they come into the library. I mean, well, it depends on their age, right? So if you've got the itty bitties, we've seen so many parents who haven't gotten their baby's library cards or don't read to their babies yet. And we're like, have you read, are you reading your baby? We're like, well, no, because they don't understand words yet. It's like, well, no, that's the whole reason. <laughs> you, that's why we have board books. You read them, you get them inert to reading at a very, very young age so that it just is, again, natural, like breathing, like make them make cozy time, make parent time, cuddle time, reading time, and they will instinctively love the reading. And if they're older, you know, and they're bringing in their kids, let the kids read what they want to read. If that kid wants to read comics, by gum, there are some amazing 
amazing comics coming out right now. If the kid only wants to read shark books, I will give you every shark book in this library. Sharks, 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 sharks. Let them read shark books. Let the kids read what they want to read. If they want to read Archie comics, there's even in Archie comics, man, there's good stuff to be found. And even if you hate whatever they're reading, uh, well, you have the right as a parent to, to control what they're reading. But, you know, give it a chance. Read it with them. Discuss it with them. You know, Dogman books are shockingly smart and they don't look it, but they are really wise little titles. So, yeah, that, that's what I'd say. Yeah. Perfect answer, Betsy. Well, thank you so much for spending your time with us and for writing such a fun book. I literally never thought I would read a book about a girl who learns to ride an ostrich. So thank you. (laughs) Thank you for having me. This was so fun. Thank you so much for joining us on this quest for growing readers. To see which author or illustrator guests we have coming up and how you can ask them questions, keep a watch on our Facebook and Instagram pages. Our handle for both is The Children's Book Review. The Growing Readers Podcast is a production of The Children's Book Review. If you like this show, remember you can hear it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Anchor, or any of your favorite podcast platforms. Subscribe to the show to get new episodes as soon as they launch. If you're enjoying our book chats, please leave us a review. And while you're at it, tell a friend to come and have a listen. To discover more amazing books for kids, just like Betsy Bird and David Small's Long Road to the Circus, I hope you'll visit us at thechildrensbookreview.com. Thank you.